0: Hello and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London and I will be your host for this episode. In this episode I have the pleasure of talking to Alice Brett, Listeners may know Alice from the important role she played in getting the research software engineering movement off the ground. Until the end of 2020, Alice was also the president of the Society for Research Software Engineering in the UK. And here now, my conversation with Alice. Hello Alice and welcome to the show. Alice, you have almost two parallel strands in your career, one of which is the president of the RSE and your RSE engineering role and the other one at the UK Atomic Energy Authority. So I would like to start with your career path as a research software engineer and maybe you can start by giving us an overview of your background there first before we move on to the other area.
1: Sure, thanks for having me on your show. I guess when I was starting out thinking about careers at school I liked loads of different subjects. I liked scientific and technical things and I also liked lots of other arts and humanities types of things so it was never that clear um, which way I would go but I was really inspired by physics and so my degree was in physics and I was quite an idealist so I was very determined that I wanted to do theoretical physics and have nothing to do with experiments or computers at that early point Mm. so I I got my physics degree and then I went to do start a PhD in theoretical particle physics I guess I quickly learned during that process that um, it was very hard to (laughs) to stay away from both experiments and computers and I think I had a bit of a, a fear of getting into programming and things I felt it was something I didn't really understand and lots of other people on my course had a lot more background in that so I was actually quite late getting into any programming at all towards the end of my degree and then really having to be quite self-taught during the the early part of the PhD. Um, I actually ended up not completing that PhD uh, for various reasons but I think a part of that was to do with the sort of the culture within research and the, the lack of support for developing those software skills that proved to be so necessary for my research. So I think that was probably where I started to be aware of, of the issues around software
0: and research. Okay, that's quite interesting because <laughs> I think very often research software engineers start the by being thrown into the deep end. You stopped doing the PhD and went into software engineering. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got involved in uh, research software engineering as such and into the role of actually building a community around software engineering in the UK?
1: Yeah, so it was, I mean, it was quite a traumatic thing, I think, giving up the PhD, I, I feel a lot of identity was tied up in that and a lot of the way I saw myself. So at that time, I was really looking around for what on earth can I do next, you know, and much as I had was very badly self-taught in things like C++ during the, the early yeah. part of that PhD, I still felt that sort of programming and that kind of problem solving was something I could do for a career. And so The first um, job that I got doing that was actually for the university, for Oxford University, where I got a sort of two year contract doing some web development and database development. And that was interesting. It was a website and database project that was like a service for early career researchers. So at the same time, I was based in the career service and was thinking about research careers. But there I was able to this time do more of a proper job of, of self-teaching myself software engineering, because I had the, the time and the space to do that and to read about it and to try things. So that's where I really transitioned to being a professional software engineer. But after, when coming up to the end of that contract, I was looking to then use those skills and go back further towards physics and the areas that interested me and also it was very important to me to be doing something where I felt I was contributing to an important goal for society. So when the job at UK Atomic Energy Authority came up as a software engineer doing data systems and software tools for scientists working with nuclear fusion data from the jet experiment, uh, that really captured my imagination and so that was my first job which I would call research software engineering.
0: Did actually the term research software engineering exist at the time that you went into the UKAEA, or was it actually still in the future? When you started out doing that, did that actually exist?
1: No, it absolutely didn't. So this was 2007, and um, so mm-hmm. the job title was software engineer, and this was clearly a research organisation, but there was no sense of any wider community or identity around that role. I enjoyed that role and I learnt a huge amount. I enjoyed working with the scientists and feeling like I was doing something useful. But I'd never had that sense of being part of anything larger. And I don't think the respect for that as an important role in research really existed at that point. There was quite a sense of it being sort of more of a support service. And I I feel less less influence and, and respect for people in those roles, perhaps.
0: And yet here you are, you, you are the founding president of the Research Software Engineering Society, or actually the outgoing, and we come to that back a little bit later. But I mean, sort of back from the days when you started in software engineering in 2007 at UKAEA, to having that role as founding president. I mean, what was that journey like?
1: I was working in that software engineering role and, you know, working on my technical skills and learning about fusion al- along the way. Um, and I did that for several years, about Seven years I was a working research software engineer, uh, interspersed Mm. with a couple of maternity leaves uh, during that time and some part time working. And then, after I came back after having my second child, then I was sort of promoted to a more senior role and eventually became the team leader of that team I'd worked in. Mm. And and around about that same time in 2015, I got a fellowship with the Software Sustainability Institute. And this was really my first opportunity to make contact with a, a wider community of people who cared about software and research.
0: Yeah and I think that was the first round of fellowships wasn't it?
1: I think that no there had been a one or two rounds before but it was certainly quite in the early days of those things and it was certainly the first year where this uh, network of research software engineering leaders formed. It really felt like the sort of early stages of that journey.
0: Quite interesting to think back that, you know, you were talking about entering UK AEA as software engineer in 2007. And in 2015, we were just at the cusp of having these roles recognised. It gives us a little bit of a timescale of how much time it took to actually get the ball rolling.
1: So there were um, a lot of people with, were, were st- I wasn't involved right at the point where this this thing was being defined and taking off. It was 2012, 2013, where some people were getting together for the first time and coining the phrase research software engineer, and the first groups were forming. Mm. But it still felt like sort of early days, really, when I got involved in 2015.
0: So when did you become the founding president then of the Research Software Engineering Society?
1: Originally, it was the UK RSE Association was what existed when I first got involved. And it had a a committee. When I sort of discovered this whole world and got quite inspired by it in 2015 at the SSI Collaborations Workshop, um, I started getting involved in this little network of RSE leaders who are running groups or hoping to set up RSE groups. I got involved in organising the first RSE conference in 2016. And in the run up to that conference, they were holding elections for the the RSE Association Committee and they asked for people to nominate themselves. I was encouraged to put myself forward, which I think I would have never thought to do myself, just (laughs) fairly newly coming into this community. But I'm so grateful that I was encouraged because I I put my name forward and ended up agreeing to be the joint chair of the association with Christopher Woods, who was also just joining Mm. at that time. And really the story of the early years of chairing that committee was the journey towards formalisation, the idea that it would be we could do some great things as an informal community and a grassroots movement that the future steps would require some kind of legal entity or formal organisation to take things forward. You know, being independent of any university, not relying on putting money through a university's bank account and this kind of thing.
0: Was it actually hard to set up this organisation in the end?
1: Yes, this is, it is. I would say it was quite hard because it, it took a lot longer than we were imagining.
0: How long did it take?
1: I mean, I would guess the idea was being floated fairly early on, probably from around about 2017, and the society was finally established in 2019. So I'd say it was uh, certainly a, a strong theme for those couple of years. I think the reason these things take so long, it's partly that you're a committee of volunteers. So everybody's doing this alongside often very demanding day jobs. I think a lot of people on the committee at that time were also running RSE groups in their own institutions or had very demanding jobs in other ways. And there's also the fact that you're doing everything for the first time. So there's there's a um, lot of quite bureaucratic processes and, and hoops to jump through to set, set up an organisation. And it's not an easy thing to do in your spare time.
0: Uh, the reason I'm asking these questions is because, I mean, now here we are, as I mentioned earlier, we're having roles defined as research software engineers, for instance, me at UCL and other people in other universities, but back in the days, none of that existed. And so how do you think the your work in the Research Software Engineering Association actually helped to get that going? And what are the key steps that you think you took to help that make happen?
1: Really, to get that recognition of the roles, there's a sort of two-pronged approach. I think the most important thing is that sense of identity and belonging for the people who were in fact Mm. often doing this kind of role in some form or another without that identity and that community around them. I often say you know when I first got involved through the SSI there was a real sense of sort of finding your tribe. One of the highlights for me of what we've been able to do through the association and the society is say running those annual conferences or other kinds of networking groups and Seeing that happen for other people, you know, feeling that sense of buzz when a lot of people come along and think, Mm. Yes, this is my community, this is what I want to do. So, I think that's one very strong theme is that community building, you know, the power of a lot of people that believe in something coming together. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I would say the other strand is then the sort of the need to influence people who have the power to make decisions and change structures and, you know, fund things. So, I think that was very important for the movement to have links with those organisations that have that more formal power that includes things like the research councils so the having strong backing from EPSRC for instance was really really important the fact that they established the RSE fellowships was a really strong signal to universities and things that this is taken seriously we're willing to fund this with the same sort of fellowships with the same level of prestige as the sort of research leadership fellowships that was a strong signal Uh, And similarly, sort of decision makers in universities. So I think in the early days, there were some some great events we ran where we invited some quite senior people from universities to feel that sense of energy and that buzz and to hear the convincing arguments about why software can be transformative for research and we need to do it better.
0: I think it's quite an important point you make because, I mean, there is the community aspect for sure, but ultimately it comes down to funding because if you want to be recognised as research software engineers in our roles at universities, then these roles, well, there are salaries to be paid and there needs to be money available. How much arm twisting did that take to get you there?
1: So I I think often those two things play into each other. Often the, the battle to get groups established and roles funded is something that's individual to different institutions. So it takes someone with the determination and the ability to make that happen within their institution and equally that's difficult work to do so those people being able to support each other and share knowledge of what worked for them so the community can really support the individual efforts and in institutions to make this happen I think.
0: Do you think there was some kind of a snowball effect that one university started doing it and the other thought oh that may not be a bad idea I do that too do you think that played a role in this?
1: Absolutely yeah I think that was that was very clear and um, especially some of the early groups that got established there's almost a sense that you see yourself at the forefront of this movement and you want to slightly compete to keep that position so that that can can be helpful I think but also it's quite natural I think for and and very sensible for universities to look around and see what works elsewhere and to want to implement that themselves. It helps make the case to to try it out in your institution.
0: I think you're term as president is coming to an end, or it already ended. So how does that feel, actually, looking back?
1: (laughs) It is, it it does feel like quite a sort of momentous moment, really. It's something I've been, Mm -hmm. it's been sort of really dominating my my career to some extent, because what I've done in the national RSE movement has very much played into what I've been doing within UKAA and establishing an RSE team within my group there, for instance. I feel it's definitely the right moment to step back. Movements like this it's um, important that they don't become too identified with individual people or you know one individual set of people on a committee. That there's a sort of healthy influx of new ideas and new people with energy to drive things forward. So I think it's definitely the right time to step back. But again, it feels it's difficult to let go of something that you've been so involved in building for several years. Um, yeah. I have lots of confidence in where where the movement is now and, and the society. We've got a really excellent person taking over as the new president in Paul richmond who's running the sheffield rse group and um, we've worked together really closely over the last year with him being stepping into the vice president role we had this sort of succession plan that we would have a vice president who would end up taking over so that makes the whole transition easier
0: do you think you're going to miss the work at rse then i mean you alluded to that a little bit but what do you have actually wanted to continue was it more a logical decision to say, okay, well, I, I really have to stop now, but I really would like to go on doing it.
1: I have a feeling that I would like to go on contributing in some way. At the moment, I think it's definitely the right time to stop doing that particular role. And I'm quite happy with that. I think four years is a a good amount of time to be involved in that committee. I'm happy to hand that over. But I do still feel this strong sense I want to be involved in pushing this whole movement forward. Okay, now we've got this big growth in number of RSEs. What can we do with that? Are there, um, can we make those roles better able to have influence on the, the big research project, software projects that come up in the future?
0: Okay, so it sounds a bit like you feel that there's a different phase we're entering now. What do you think lies ahead for the uh, Research Software Engineering Association? Not trying to influence the next president, of course, but I mean, <laughs> what, what, from your perspective, <laughs> uh, what do you think are the big things that need to happen or that should happen?
1: And um, so there are a few sort of themes that we've been talking about that I I think are probably quite likely to continue. One is, okay, so we've got this organisation which is a bit more formal than the way the movement's been in the past. How can you strike a good balance between setting up good systems and a professional operation for the society itself as an organisation, but keeping that sort of energy and community spirit that there has been in the, the wider community and I think you know there's some really good ideas about how to do that and for instance sort of working groups for members of the society to get more hands-on involved in particular initiatives or, or themes or developing positions for the society so I'm quite excited to see where that goes. There's also a whole theme about relationships with other organisations One of that is our relationship with international movements, because this has become an international movement. There are similar associations starting up in lots of other countries, several European countries in the US, Australia and New Zealand, for instance. One thing that Paul has been involved in just recently at an international RSE leaders workshop is trying to set up a sort of a body to coordinate between those different national associations when we might want to act internationally. And relations to other organisations in the UK as well. So other professional bodies, for instance, where we've got overlapping interests. Can we work together with more established organisations like the British Computing Society and to have some joint activities and make our voice more powerful that way?
0: Uh, it sounds like quite an exciting future ahead. I would like to move on to your other life, so to speak, at UK AEA and uh, the role you have there. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing there?
1: Sure. So, I mean, the team I first joined that I've then really been involved with all the way through makes these sort of develops and supports these data systems and data analysis and visualization tools for scientists and engineers who are um, UK Atomic Energy Authority is the UK's national lab for fusion energy research and development with a mission to help develop fusion energy as a, a sort of commercial power source for the future. So that's quite an exciting place to work. There's all sorts of different smart people with different specialisms. It's it's a good dynamic environment. Um, It's obviously this huge long-term goal. So our team's role was to um, take data from what's currently the world's largest operating fusion experiment, JET, and to make that available and useful to scientists. And that was a challenge because it's a very long-running experiment that's been going for over 30 years. And also the funding has always been extended (laughs) a few years at a time so in terms of managing a software ecosystem there's obvious challenges there but what I was able to do was I ended up leading that team so I sort of was developing skills as a software team leader but then that we were able to generalize that a bit in 2016 a software engineering group was established that had this team doing data systems and tools for experiments and also another team who were doing web and database applications for broader, broader things within the organization, more like business systems and support systems. And I saw this gap in the market where, because I was involved in this wider RSE movement, I recognized my original team were really doing RSE-like work, but they couldn't really take on projects in the same way that these university RSE groups do, where they're helping scientists and engineers throughout the organization with their software projects didn't really have the time spare for managing these important systems to do large-scale projects like that, only small bits and pieces of help. So I saw this sort of gap in the market that we need a, an RSE team working in that other style like the universities do. So in 2018 we founded that team within the group. We got the first first member joined in late 2018 and it 's grown so fast since then we 've got twelve
0: people in the team now. yeah it seems to be a story all over that these groups seem to grow quite rapidly because, as I say there is a market niche or a need for uh, RSEs and roles like that. I find it quite interesting that UK AEA, which uh, software engineering would be a little bit more like private sector where you have an IT office. But you identified the research project as well that I, that keep running in UKAA that uh, required special skills that RSEs provide. What are these skills actually specifically?
1: Yeah, that, that's absolutely true that places like National Labs um, often did have pre-existing software teams that were working more on infrastructure. The position for the the groups which are more like research groups, very similar to research groups in a university, often is that they really were in that very similar position of needing to be able to call on the professional software engineering skills as and when they needed them. I mean, in physics, there are it's very common for researchers to be able to program and to, to write very complex software, for instance, um, software to model the behavior of plasmas. You know, a lot of the plasma physics groups have a lot of modeling software, there's software to model. Aspects of engineering, of Tokamaks, for instance. So engineering modelling is a big area. There's lots of people writing software to analyse data, to process data after experiments, to reconstruct physical quantities. And there's huge new activities as well. Like um, we've got a a lot of new facilities now, which are focused on the sort of technology around fusion and related applications, for instance. This much wider ecosystem and, and the people who are in what you might call the core IT software engineering teams was really a, a small minority of the the people writing code on site. In that way, that's really the role of the RSE team is to work in a really flexible way with all of those different projects.
0: So which brings me to another question that I had, and that actually came up recently uh, in a presentation at a saucy conference called specializations within RSEs. I mean, it's a fairly young role, so it might be a little bit too soon to call for specializations, But as these teams grow, and they seem to grow quite rapidly, some of them, there might be need for RSE specialising on infrastructure, there might be RSE specialising on machine learning, there might be RSE specialising on other areas. Do you see that as the way forward? Is that something that could be relevant in your work?
1: I've been thinking about that a lot right now, actually, because we've done this really rapid phase of growth where we've We've largely hired the roles a generalist, but of course, the people you hire are not. There's no such thing as a a generalist person. They all come with unique knowledge and backgrounds and find they're better suited to some projects than others naturally. So there's a there's a way in which specialisation kind of emerges, I think, where. An RSE comes in, maybe they've got a particular kind of background and they find they work really well with a certain set of our research groups and build some really strong ongoing relationships and collaborations. So I'm imagining that in the next phase, we develop more of a system where some of our senior RSEs become a point of contact for particular research areas or particular technology areas, for instance, and that's a sort of emergent specialisation. But I am thinking at the size the team's getting to now, you start to have a bit of scope to deliberately hire specialist roles as well. So I I, I think probably the right answer is a mixture. You don't want to get too rigid with the specialisation, but uh, where you can find opportunities like that. And I think that often depends on your funding structures as well, if the way you fund your group is flexible enough. So we fight quite hard to keep some flexibility in how we assign people to projects.
0: I got to ask about nuclear fusion, I'm sorry, but I think nuclear fusion the prospect of which has been around for a while. And you mentioned two years that it's been running. And JET is one of the largest experiments. So how do you think this nuclear fusion is going? Are we getting a commercial application anytime soon, do you think? Do you have insight into this?
1: It's it's a bit of a perennial (laughs) question. And from my perspective, I can see that huge progress is happening. The the headline estimates for timescales of when we'll have commercial fusion always always recede, you know, frustratingly as, as for any sort of huge complex thing that you do for the first time. It's it's very, very hard to predict decades out, precise timescales, but yet you can see the, the exciting progress in the right direction. I mean, at the moment, the sort of mainline roadmap and timescale for commercial fusion amongst the Eurofusion consortium that we're we're a part of has the first demonstration fusion reactor which would have the the design of an eventual power plant and be able to put energy mm-hmm. into the grid, being in the 2050s. So this is still pretty far away.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, but
1: there's a lot of concrete steps before then where you can see definite progress and definite achievements. Uh, in the UK, actually, there's quite an exciting new program which has this really ambitious aim to feed energy into the national grid by 2040 by using a different design of tokamak that's more compact and potentially could be quicker and cheaper to build yeah that's a very exciting thing to be part of a big program called STEP that the government has funded and that we're it's been behind a lot of the growth of UKAA and consequently the research software engineering activity in the last
0: year could you explain what STEP is what does it actually stand for
1: it stands for spherical tokamak for energy production and so it's a a program that's just getting to we've just finished the first year of that program which a, a lot of that has been sort of exploratory design work, setting up partnerships. It's a, a big programme that's meant to um, involve UK industry as well as um, our university partners. So it's it's meant to bring together all the skills with UKAA, sort of coordinating that as as the hub. You know, we've got this sort of dual mission, which is to be at the forefront of fusion research, to accelerate the journey towards commercial fusion power, but also to provide benefits to the UK economy and allow UK companies to benefit from this this work and to develop the skills that will be needed. So it's quite exciting to see those partnerships developing.
0: That's very exciting. And I think we could probably talk about nuclear fusion for a few hours longer. But I think we're coming to the end of the podcast now. I'd like to finish with two questions. The first one is, if you imagine a point far ahead into the future and you look back to your career, what do you hope you'd accomplish by then?
1: That's a tricky one. I've always found that hard <laughs> to know. I always, I can always see I have a general sense of the kind of thing I'd like to achieve, but the, the specific opportunities, I feel like none of them have been anything I could have predicted, to be honest. For me, what's important is that we're trying to build these research software engineering careers and this, this capability, but it's not for its own sake. It's to achieve important things in research, right? So I'm really in Interested now that we can get a critical mass of the people with these really important skills, that we develop how they can engage with research projects and make that more positive and more influential. Um, so I would like to see a real difference in the way research software projects are envisaged, having like these multidisciplinary teams in research where you have the right people involved from the start to make sure it's successful, because we all know how much harder it is to to come in later and to improve something and change something rather than to have all those complementary skills involved from the start. So if I could look back and see that, you know, there were later generations of of important, widely used, sustainable research software that had made a huge difference to some important research fields, that's what I'd like to see.
0: Excellent. And finally... What do you do in your spare time when you're not programming and leading teams?
1: I, I'd say in recent months the concept of spare time is, <laughs> is <laughs> slightly thrown So I mean, I've got two children and we've got a house we're renovating at the moment. So um, oh, wow. there, there's there's time not working, but it doesn't feel spare very often. I would, <laughs> yeah. um, we enjoy getting outside and doing doing outdoor things with the kids, trying to mm. trying to do things with this house that we've been renovating takes up a lot of time in theory i love doing things with groups of people like singing in choirs or
0: yeah that's difficult but
1: this seems like a, a bit of a distant memory at the moment
0: thank you so much alice that was an exciting interview and i enjoyed talking to you and i wish you all the best for the future
1: thank you very much
0: thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future if you like this episode It'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that, goodbye.